Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we discuss what life is really like for those unfortunate enough to live under communist or socialist governments. Recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon, this is Eric Seligman, your host. My co-host Manuel was unable to make it for this episode. This month we have a special treat, an interview with Sergei Gertishkin, the author of Everything is Normal, the book we discussed in the last episode. As you may recall, he talked about the mundane details of his life growing up in the Soviet Union of the 1970s and 80s, when an opportunity to eat a banana was a special event, and a tacky souvenir keychain was so valuable his grandmother made him hide it away. As you'll hear in the interview, I thought it might be fun to share the insights of another friend, Yulia, who grew up in the USSR during that time, and have Sergei compare and contrast some of his experiences to hers. As you heard in our last episode, um, yeah, we loved your book, um, and we talked about it quite a bit. And um, yeah, yeah you, you had a lot of great insights. Um, how have your sales been, by the way? Uh, uh, not bad. So um, I think in total there were approximately 6,000 6, copies sold, uh, both printed and digital in English. And then uh, the Russian version came out in the end of last year, uh, in the very end of last year, but because of COVID, the sales were not great, so it's, it was about 1,000 sold uh, in print, and I don't know how many in digital. Yeah, but it was a it was a project non non commercial project. So I'm very happy that uh, on Amazon and Goodreads uh, reviews from people who who don't know me are quite good. And uh, so generally, I'm very. But in Russia, Russian version was a little bit more controversial, and <laughs> uh, because today in uh, in Russia, obviously uh, the the propaganda is saying that everything in Soviet Union was great. Um, so, so that everything Russian was great uh, before the revolution and after the revolution and today. And uh, clearly uh, the country is looking backwards as sort of Soviet Union was the good time. So I was getting a lot of comments from quite young people actually that I was too critical about Soviet Union. Actually, Russian version was slightly less critical. I toned it down a little bit. Um, but uh, still, yeah, people, very many people are brainwashed into thinking that Today's Russians they're living in Soviet Union in, in today's Russia. And Soviet Union was great and that's really, really horrendous for people of my generation. Anyway, yeah, so sales not bad, not bad. Yeah, yeah. So that's um yeah, I mean it's interesting, you know, to to think that, you know, after all that you lived through and wrote about that people growing up there today are sort of idealizing that time and and uh, not really thinking about the fact that things were so hard for you. Um yeah. So now, when yeah. people in Russia today, um, how much have things changed? Like, do they have general access to the little things? Like, is everybody chewing bubble gum and eating bananas uh, these days in Russia? Of course, of course. Yeah, today, yeah, in terms of consumption, in terms of the look and feel, there's absolutely no difference between Russia or any other. Well, Moscow, for example, if you take Moscow as a capital, there is no fundamental difference in consumption between Moscow and other other places. And abundance of uh, food and restaurants and nightclubs and cars and everything you can do whatever you want uh, in terms of consumption uh, you can't say everything you can't say everything you want to say uh, but in terms of uh, material life it's definitely on par with the with, with any developed western country now 
Well, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, so like I mentioned in email, you know, I had an interesting conversation um, over email with um, a Facebook friend of mine, Yulia, who also grew up in the Soviet Union. And uh, I thought it would be, you know, kind of fun to look at some of the things she said and, um, you know, how they relate to your book and um, figure out your reaction to them, if, if that sounds okay. Sure. Yeah, and um, yeah, she, of course I invited her to come on the podcast too and do this live, but uh, she's very shy about her accent. Apparently her English isn't as good as yours, so she preferred that I just read off quotes from her rather than having her speak. So it's the only reason she sure. isn't here. But um, you know, one interesting thing is that uh, when I first told her about your book, um, she actually hadn't read it yet, though she read it after I told her about it, and she was really skeptical when she read your bio. You know, she said... Uh, there were three major cities in the USSR that were decently supplied by food and goods. So the life of the people from those cities was not like the rest of the Soviet Union. It was like a different, more developed country, right? So she considered you, even in the, the deprivation you described in that book, sort of living in sort of an elite state as far as the Soviet Union goes. I was wondering if you would comment on that. Is that true? Or did you feel like you were better off than the people in the countryside and things like that? Well, yes, that's for sure. That's for sure. So the countryside was much worse supplied in terms of material goods. Clearly, Leningrad or St. Petersburg today was much, much better. Uh, Moscow uh, was by far the best uh, because that was where all the government officials were. So in Moscow, you could um, yeah, you could buy oranges sometimes uh, in the shops, uh, obviously with queues, but uh, it was something that was reasonably available as far as I know. My wife is from Moscow. Uh, Leningrad was uh, worse, but significantly worse than Moscow, but at the same time uh, better than uh, a small village. Uh, also some of the mining cities, mining towns um, in Siberia were also very well supplied. I remember once I went uh, with my school on a, on a trip to one mining town in the northern part of Russia, and I, I was surprised how well, well supplied the shops were there compared to Leningrad. Uh, but this is true, yeah, to some extent it was not an extreme. Uh, living in a tiny town in the middle of nowhere in Soviet Union would have been much worse. Yeah, yeah. So she also wrote that both her parents were engineers, but they lived very poorly. All their salaries would go to food and utilities. And even though both her parents had master's degrees from universities, they worked all the time. And, um, you know, so she basically had to wear, like, hand-me-down clothes from her brothers and sisters, uh, things like that. Um, is that also how you saw the, the middle-class living? Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We were a little bit better off than uh, just two engineers because my stepfather was quite quite high in um, in the university ranks. Uh, so he had a better salary than if he would have been a normal engineer. Uh, but that's very true, yeah. So people who were reasonably well off uh, in Soviet Union were mainly uh, employees of shops uh, where they could potentially take some of the some of the stuff home and then sell it uh, at a margin. Uh, or they could exchange one favor for another favor. <laughs> so the, uh, the workers of a service industry, the... Uh, the shop assistant, the waiters, uh, the uh, uh, car um, the car center specialists were were the wealthy guys, because with cars, some 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 people had cars. Very very few people had cars, but some people had cars, and uh, servicing these cars was a nightmare. So if someone could help you with uh, servicing your car, you obviously would pay a little bit extra for it. So these guys were actually quite rich. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, it is interesting. You know, in, in your book, you emphasized how, yeah, a lot of the things were people who like worked in places and had contacts and could trade things were much better off than people who had to pay money. Um, so one other thing that Yulia pointed out was that, um, you know, people would preferably buy in the marketplace because in the store, the vegetables were half rotten, but you couldn't pick them. You had to pay for the rotten ones, too. It was very usual when the lady yes. over the counter yelled, if you don't like it, go to the market. Customer service was awful. They were ridiculously rude and talked to customers like they own the food and do people a favor by selling it. That's very true. That's very true. Actually, I forgot to mention that in my book, but that, that's very true. The uh, the level of service uh, was, was pretty horrendous. Nobody was care nobody cared. You were asking the uh, the shop assistant to be nice to you. You were trying to be very nice because if you were not nice, then the, the shop assistant can just send you away. It's like um, I don't know if you know, if you like Seinfeld. There is one episode, Soup Nazi, when <laughs> yeah. uh, the guy who was selling soup. He was selecting whom to sell it to. So that was pretty much the same in Soviet in Soviet shops. And the market was yeah, and you couldn't choose. Of course, you couldn't choose. If you're saying I need five kilos of potatoes, and some of them were rotten, or half of them were actually just pieces of mud, uh, you couldn't say that, and could you couldn't return anything. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to look at the parallels between that and certain aspects, even of our Western societies. Like in the U.S., we have what's called the division of motor vehicles. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, yep. where it's the, the yep. state-run agency where you go to renew your driver's licenses and stuff. And um, yeah. it's very famous that because they're paid directly by the state and have no real you know incentive in terms of number of sales per day or something of driver's licenses, they just do not care at all about their customers, right? And they're notorious for having long lines and grumpy service and things like that. And it seems like it's anywhere where you sort of take the sort of interaction between the buyer and purchaser away Right, and just say some third party is going to be paying the salary of the people selling it, and they won't really care what happens. You end up with situations yeah. like that. Exactly. The, oh, pretty much all service industry was like that, uh, and uh, especially you know, when there was a shortage of everything. And then naturally, the people who sell uh, becoming are becoming much, much higher, having much more power over the customers. <laughs> Yeah. So another thing about the food that um, Yulia mentioned that I think also you covered in your book was, um, you know, she says, we never threw food away, even if it would be infested with bugs. Mom would sift the infested flour. Grains would be slightly fried in the stove so that bugs would die. Parents would joke about it. Here we have a little protein referring to the bugs in the grain. Uh, well, in my case, I I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. I don't think that we ever went for that sort of, uh, to that extreme. Uh, but uh, for example, yeah, the, uh, if we're using frying oil, for example, to fry potatoes, uh, and then there was some frying oil left in the pan, then it was never thrown away. It was saved for, for another, uh, for, for the next time uh, potatoes would be fried. So many things like this uh, obviously were, uh, were stored, or well, no food was thrown away, no food, no, never ever. It was uh, recycled and uh, stored in the fridge for consumption next day or the day after. <laughs> wow. Yeah, to be honest, when I moved to the West for me, especially with the, with the, with the bread and especially with some uh, cereal-based products, because in, 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 it was ingrained in my mind that it's just it's a sin to throw away any food, especially bread. 
So when we were get, when I was living out in, in in different countries and when the bread was getting stale, throwing it away, I think it took me how, quite a few years before I before I, I stopped worrying about it that I'm doing something very bad. But, um, so now let's go into another of Yulia's uh, less pleasant quotes. Um, she talked about how um, when she grew up, again, you know, it's a middle class child of engineers. The toilet was public, about 100 meters away from the home, and it was wooden with two holes. We would bring water from a water pump about 200 meters away. Kids would do it. In the winter, it would be challenging because the bucket would swing when walking and water would splash into my boots. Wow. Yeah, that's quite a memory, but it's uh, living in the very small town. She must have lived in a small town. Well, today, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I've, I've read uh, some statistics that uh, today 20 million of Russians don't have a toilet in their house. Um, so the, exactly using the same concept because uh, very many buildings, uh, when, when Russia was in the Soviet Union and was industrializing, uh, comforts of uh, workers of the future communist paradise were not really considered. And uh, so they were just building very cheap houses and then they were, who cares about how people are going to go to the toilet. So there was one toilet built for um, for 100 people and that was done outside. Yeah, I've obviously um, had uh, pleasures of being to these toilets and they're very nasty. Uh, but I was very lucky again uh, to have a, a proper a proper toilet at home. Okay. Well, when I was born, to, having said that, when I was born, I was born in a communal flat, and I had very little memories of them. In the communal flat, obviously, we had uh, there were seven families, about twenty people in one in one apartment, and uh, there was only one toilet. <laughs> yeah, I remember you did talk about that in the book. How you had to wait on it. I'm I'm pretty sure that I had my own plastic toilet in the room. Uh, which I was utilizing. <laughs> that sounds pretty gross, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, um, so another thing Yulia mentioned is, you know, she was interested in what you talked about, how they cleaned out Moscow for the 1980 Olympics, because um, she was um, yeah. actually a student in Moscow in 1985. I guess she was in college there. And uh, she says, in 1985, it was the Students and Youth Festival in Moscow, and it was similar events as Grichishkin describes in the 1980 Olympics. They cleaned Moscow from people. They also cleaned the skies to provide good weather during the event. They would shoot at the clouds and it would move them. As a result, it was excessive rains in areas two to three hours from Moscow, and the crop died that year. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me uh, at all. In general, uh, improving the weather is a technology uh, that uh, Russia uses very often. I don't. I'm pretty sure it's quite bad for, for the environment. Uh, but uh, Russia likes events, uh, big parades and uh, uh, big international events. So for uh, major, major events, they're doing this. Yeah, they're shooting the clouds. They're seeding the clouds with some sort of chemicals. And effectively, that makes the clouds pour rain immediately. Um, so when the clouds are approaching Moscow, they're seeded with this and there is a lot of rain that goes down. So it's very, very possible. I'm not surprised at all. Yeah, and the, the youth festival. Yeah, I was uh, I was outside of uh, the the youth festival here happened in Moscow, so it was not affecting Saint Petersburg because it was a one city event. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So, um, so now one other thing Yulia said is, um, you know, she was a little bit concerned when I mentioned that I, you know, I found your book funny <laughs> just because, you know, you know, she, she was a little bit scared of the general idea of applying humor to this. So the way she described it is, you know, Russian propaganda comes not only from evil people, the most effective is just softly portraying the Soviet Union. Recently, my own daughter, who lives separately, sent a humor video with some guy cooking a meal Stalin-style with a Soviet flag in his kitchen, etc. It's supposed to be a joke. I sent back to her a picture of the pile of bodies starved by Stalin in Ukraine. So, you can see how, you know, yeah. of course, some people, you know... I, I, I can... I can I can understand that I can understand that but um, I was trying to make it a little bit more lighthearted and uh, I think uh, we have read a lot of accounts uh, which are very serious and uh, uh, the Solzhenitsyn like um, of the of the horrors yeah. of the Soviet Union and I was trying to make it lighthearted and during my time during my childhood it, it was not as cruel uh, the regime was not as cruel on a massive scale as it used to be in stalin's time so people were not dying of hunger i think yeah there were political murders but they were very very small obviously there was oppression of dissidents uh, people were sitting in mental hospitals and in prisons and people were not let uh, go out of the country and so on and so forth but it was um, it, it was dictatorship light uh, it was not as cruel so um, I, I think that a little bit of a joke is pretty is pretty much okay here, and especially because well, I'm using any, I was using quite a lot of anecdotes which people were telling to each other because uh, majority of people deep in their hearts they hated the the regime and they hated all the uh, bureaucracy and fakeness of it, um, and uh, people were very happy to laugh, um, and that was one of the only things that people could do because yeah, you couldn't officially, you couldn't officially criticize uh, your government, uh, you couldn't read forbidden literature, but um, anecdotes which were going from sort of from one person to another person. That was a way of uh, the, um, the way of passing uh, funny messages about about the the way the life was, and surprisingly, after after the fall of the Soviet Union, this anecdote culture or political anecdote culture very much disappeared. So when when uh, people young young people used to get together, that was a very very typical pastime and not only young people actually some adults too when you were having a couple of drinks um, with your friends and then people around the table started to started to tell anecdotes and uh, some people who could tell anecdotes well were very much were kind of the center of the company at the center of the mm -hmm. table very real but this very very gradually disappears so today uh, I hardly I hardly hear any new anecdotes and in my School school days. It was like every week there were five or ten new anecdotes which everybody was telling to each other. A lot of them were political. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I really enjoyed your book, and I think you know, just being able to have a sense of humor about things, I think, probably helps people cope a lot better. You know, in a lot of cases, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think one of the the main points um, I think that I, I wanted to make. Well, yeah, obviously, I wrote this book as a, as a hobby, and I wanted um, uh, something to be left for my children. And also, I discovered that there is very little information about the social history of the of the time when I grew up. There are 
just a few very 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 few few books here and there but nothing not, nothing more detailed and so i thought that that would be interesting for uh, for people outside of russia outside and it would be also interesting for people in russia who grew up together with me but i think the, the fundamental point that i wanted to make is was that the life under the uh, communism felt absolutely normal it was to majority of people i was probably one of the very few uh, young kids who was instantly fascinated with everything outside and i always wanted to look through the small hole in the iron curtain and see what's happening out there and every time i was getting a little bit of a glimpse into the outside world i was getting fascinated more and more and uh, i was giving so, the string gum and pepsi cola and that sort of examples in the book and uh, but for majority of people this life without everything without free speech without uh, with a lot of hardships uh, with uh, not no knowledge of uh, what's happening in the world uh, hardly anyone of my generation when i when i was growing up knew who michael jackson was Whilst in, in the in, in in the West, everybody knew. Uh, yeah, when I got a, a thing uh, of Manchester United, I had no idea that Manchester United was number one, one of one of the top football teams, and so on. So, but for people who live there, actually, everything seems to be okay. That's the way things are, and this feels normal. So, I, someone mentioned in the comments to my uh, to my book that uh, it was very similar in Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany thought that that was uh, the life, uh, the way it was 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 normal, and it, it, it was it was it was okay. And then the awakening happens, and um, I think to some extent after Russia, after Soviet Union fell apart, the awake the awakening has happened. Uh, but unlike Germany, where this awakening uh, is still there. I think Russia now tries to uh, to go back and forget about the the um, the fact that uh, everything uh, during Soviet Union was was bad, and trying to now to say that everything is good. And I think one of the reasons for that is not just because the people who are in power now uh, are remembering their nice days when we were, they were young and strong, uh, and uh, also there was a very little produced in terms of intellectual. Um, uh, property. There was very little interesting things generated by by New Russia in terms of art, cinema, internationally acceptable cultural things. Very very little. While Soviet Union, with all the with all the difficulties, uh, was quite strong in soft power and it produced quite quite a lot of very very high quality music and film and books. Uh, during during that time, um, and uh, so many people are looking back, thinking that okay, uh, Soviet Union was not so bad. <laughs> anyway, that's the that's the, the the way that's where we are today. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think your book's really important um, because of the fact that yeah, people haven't sort of explicitly recorded sort of what was going on in the Soviet Union during the time you grew up, right? And to the, in the sense that I think there are a lot of books and articles and stuff out about Stalin and his mass murders and, you know, the people who worked with him. And, you know, even nowadays, most leftists reluctantly agree, yeah, Stalin was kind of bad, you know, though sometimes it takes some convincing to get them to admit it. But, um, you know, but then the, the general attitude is, okay, well, once they got rid of Stalin, that solved all the problems. And then after that, you had kind of good communism. And, 
I think people just don't have a sense of sort of fundamentally how much they lost by, you know, implementing this system instead of something you know, more functional. Um, yeah. and, and that's why, you know, and again, it's why we started this podcast, you know, we need people to realize, okay, you know, all you, you know, people that are out there in the streets protesting now, this is what you're asking for, right? Do you really want to live in a world where, you know, you can only dream of bananas and, you know, where a, a, a souvenir eraser is something that you have to hide away and fear someone will steal it and <laughs> things yeah, like absolutely. that. Absolutely. Well, I, I think I think it was Churchill who said that uh, capitalist ca capitalism is the, is a horrible system, but the, the world hasn't invented anything better than that. And uh, it, it's very true. And uh, I am quite quite shocked how leftist the younger generation is. Um, I have I, I have children myself, and I, and I know a lot of young guys and teenagers. Um, after university. They all come back after good universities. They all come back communists, and uh, uh, they have no idea what it means in practice. And uh, I think, uh, as an idea, as a concept, uh, it's very romantic, and I think it sounds extremely good. But once um, we have so many examples, once once every any country starts to implement it, it turns very quickly into dictatorship, hardships, killings, uh, um, no law and so on and so forth and so forth, and uh, very bloody wars. And I don't know any really examples of a communist country uh, which uh, where people were happy and the country was strong. Um, and um, so I think that just history proves that it's, uh, it's a very nice concept, which unfortunately is not implementable in real life. Yeah, yeah. So, so before we finish our interview, I did want to ask you um, one other thing. Just, um, you know, at the end of your book, um, you pretty much, um, if I remember right, you kind of ended it when you got approved for um, to study Chinese, and you uh, left uh, the Soviet Union on a trip to China. And yes. then, so, how did it uh, proceed after that? Like, how did you go from being a uh, Soviet student temporarily abroad to a uh, obviously a uh, full-fledged uh, Western uh, citizen like you are these days. Yes. Yeah, so I'm, I'm quite international, and I think, yeah, that's uh, what I was trying to achieve. Um, yeah, so after I went to China, and I, I spent a year in China, and then I needed to go back. Uh, then I um, came back to Soviet Union. I finished my, uh, my university. I uh, was trying to find an international company to work for, so I worked for an international company for a few years, uh, then I uh, went and studied um, for MBA, Master of Business Administration in a business school in France. And after that, um, I effectively became an international MBA. And uh, I had a few proposals to work in London. So I moved to London and I worked in uh, most of, I, for a big chunk of the time, I worked for American investment banks, for JP Morgan and Merrill Lynch. And uh, then I started my own business. And then uh, a few years later, moved to Asia. So, uh, yeah, I'm spending time between uh, uh, between UK, uh, Singapore, and Italy. I am in Italy at the moment, where, where I have a place. Uh, but I haven't been to Russia for a while. I haven't been to Russia for about five and a half years now. So, um, when you went to get an MBA in France, was that had the Soviet Union already fallen by that point, or did you get yes. official approval to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Soviet Union was fallen. For the first, for the first time, when I went to see uh, my uh, relatives in Sweden, uh, that was um, in ninety one. 
in 91, I went to see relatives in Sweden. At that time, we still required to get a permit to leave the country. When I went to China, it was the same. So I had to apply to the government to allow me to leave the country. So Soviet Union already collapsed by that time. Uh, but still, the, the, there was still the same process. And I think in about you know, around 92 or 93, they stopped requiring uh, you to get Soviet Union uh, allow, to allow you to leave, to exit the country. Okay, so did you just sort of independently apply to school in France at, at that point? And yes, yes, yes. I applied to school in France. I borrowed some money from a Dutch bank, and uh, and went there, and uh, yeah, and uh, got my MBA. Well, that's good. Glad your story had a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's an interesting life. I definitely, uh, when I was a small boy, I didn't expect uh, my life to be so. Uh, uh, so diverse, let's put it this way, because I've I've tried many different things and uh, and I worked in different different areas and different places and uh, invested in very different industries and uh, I have a great family and um, have three kids um, which are yeah bilingual and totally international and that makes me very happy. Well, so um. Okay, so I guess um, you know we've gone about half an hour. It's too bad my co-host never managed to uh, reconnect to audio, uh, sadly. Um, but um, so, do you have any sort of final messages you'd say for all the the young people protesting in the streets who think uh, communism will solve all their problems? Uh, my only suggestion is to try to, to dig into the experiences, to look at uh, North Korea, Cuba, Soviet Union, any of the Eastern Bloc countries, look at the African countries which adopted a uh, communist path and uh, see how what happened there. Or you, know, you can go to extreme, you can go to Cambodia or, or places like that, uh, or, or China under Mao. Uh, it's all going into, in one direction, unfortunately. I hope you enjoyed the interview. As always, you can find more information and a link to Sergey's book, Everything is Normal, in the show notes at storiesofcommunism.com. And this has been your Story of Communism for today.